Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So this episode of the Science of Sports is all about hot. And uh, we're going to be talking to a gentleman who spends a lot of time working in the space of uh, sports cardiology and uh, giving us some of the uh, lowdown on the, the various risks, the, the kind of heart problems that people can have as sports people, and uh, to also debunk some of the things that we know about COVID and COVID vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. So before we get onto that, though, we're going to be talking to uh, Professor Ross Tucker, as usual, who's got some caught my eyes to get through today. Yeah, some that caught your eye. And <laughs> again, thanks very much for those of you who are followers on Patreon. Uh, that's a little community where you can join up. There's a voluntary donation you make. And then you'll get access to my weekly sort of newsletter, things that have caught my eye, and your opportunity to send me things that have caught yours. And that's what mm-hmm. Sherpa Dave did right at the back end of last year. Thanks for this, Dave. He said, hello, both. I found this paper and thought it might be interesting for you. And he was right. It is interesting. <laughs> it's a paper that was published in Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise, one of the good journals in the field. And it's called, bear with me, four-second power cycling training increases maximal anaerobic power, peak oxygen consumption, and total blood volume. And what they did in this particular study... In short? Yes. <laughs> uh, well, I can't promise you in short, but in medium, what they did in the study, and I want to try and position it to you with what we know about this area, because it's quite interesting, actually, is they took a group of cyclists, not, not cyclists, a group of healthy young people, but not cyclists, not active people. Mm-hmm. And they put them through eight weeks of training where they'd come into the lab and they'd do four seconds of sprinting with a 15-second rest repeated 30 times. Now, in the first week... Four, se- four seconds. Four seconds, all right. as in go, all out, four seconds. All right. Stop. 15 seconds elapse, go again. 15 seconds, go again. So it's basically a, it's an interval training session consisting of 30 reps, four seconds long, with eventually a 15-second recovery. Now, in the beginning, because it's the first exposure, they had a 30-second recovery. And over the course of eight weeks, they reduced that. So by the time they're finishing, they're doing four on, 15 off, times 30. That session would last nine and a half minutes. And it's mostly, I mean, it's exclusively a high-intensity session. Mm. And what they found is that after eight weeks, these cyclists had had a 13% increase in VO2 max. Now, where this is interesting is VO2 max is an it's the size of your aerobic engine, as it were. We've discussed this before, right? Mm-hmm. So when we measure VO2 max, we're actually talking about aerobic capacity. So what they're showing here is that you get an improvement in aerobic capacity. They also measured a 7.5% increase in total blood volume. They measured a 5% increase in red blood cell count. These are all adaptations that an endurance athlete would get, and they found it as a result of a nine and a half minute training session consisting of all out sprinting for four seconds. But they were sedentary at the start or untrained. Yes. And so this is an important point to Mm. keep in mind. 
if you do this in someone who's already got a relatively high aerobic base, the degree to which you'd improve it, I would suspect, would be considerably lower. Yes. But what it's saying is, and this is, and I'll, I'll try and plug this this study into other studies, because going back probably 20 years now, some research had been coming out of Canada showing that repeated high-intensity sprints gave you as much of an aerobic or endurance benefit as endurance training did. Now, most listeners would know that we typically oversimplify to say that training is specific. Your, sorry, your adaptation to training is specific to the type of training. If I do sprints, I get better at sprints. But if I want to get better at endurance activities, I must do endurance activities. And so the, the main author on these studies was a guy called Martin Jabala, who started to put out a number of these. And I remember one, they did 20 seconds of sprinting with one minute 40 recovery, repeated seven times. That's a 14-minute session. And they reported also VO2 max goes up, endurance capabilities go up. You measure the, the enzyme concentration as an indication of how many mitochondria you've got, you know, the oxidative mm. engines of the cell, they go up. And so these studies got a lot of people excited because in less time than the 45 minutes to an hour steady run, steady ride, whatever you need, the two hours you're going to do on Saturday, you could in less time through sprints achieve what looked like mm. quite similar adaptations. It's a very nice headline. It is. And that's what, <laughs> that's what hooks people, mm. as you know. And so they get, they get um, drawn in by the prospects that in nine and a half minutes, I can get something that would take 45 minutes. And it might well be true for some people. Then, then what's happened subsequently and more recently is that people have said, well, if this is the case for sporting people who are doing training, might it be the case for health in sedentary people? And so there was a study again, Martin Jabala. This one was studied in, uh, published in 2021. And you'll see hopefully how these all connect to one another where they made people in an office environment take three breaks a day let's call, let's call it mid-morning lunchtime and mid-afternoon and walk as fast as possible up three flights of stairs that's it that's what they did three times a day each flight of stairs each each rep rather was taking between 20 and 25 seconds mm. and after six weeks of doing that they found a five percent improvement in vo2 max again in previously totally inactive people now, so you're operating off a very low base here though and that's the key right so people mm. listening to this those of you doing five, six, 10, 15 hours of training a week. This stuff is, this is not the answer for you. Yeah. But if you know people and you've, you've regularly tried to encourage them with your good example and say, get, get out there, let's exercise twice a week for 45 minutes and they cannot overcome that initial barrier. What these studies, I think, to be positive about them suggest mm. is that those people could probably allocate you three minutes a day, three times a week and overcome that first hurdle and then maybe you could build on it. Because if you can get 5% better from literally three minutes a day, mm -hmm. then maybe you can get 10% better if you make it 10 minutes a day, and then they'll be able to come and run or walk or cycle or whatever it is with you once a week for an hour. So you can. Yeah. So it represents maybe a gateway into, yeah. into this. Uh, yeah, the, 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 you see what the headlines miss is the thing you picked up on, is that they come off a very low base. And then you can improve them by doing this kind of training. But with a higher base, it's not going to work as well, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, there is some, uh, there is certainly, we've run stories in Runner's World here in South Africa where, you know, short 
interval sessions um do if you if you if you haven't got time to go for a long run mm. go out and do a short session yeah. because there will be quite a lot of benefit by doing that but if you're going to go do a short session rather make it high intensity rather than mm. slower jogging exactly which obviously makes sense but exactly. you can actually get a benefit about going to going out and running for 20 minutes at a high intensity and the same benefit that you would maybe get if you were running for an hour Correct. slowly and what this article does, the one that Sherpa Dave sent, and I'll post it and the others I've spoken to in the, in the links again, is that they've shown that, that that ratio, four seconds all-out sprint and then a 15-second rest, mm-hmm. is probably close to optimal because it's enough time to recover to keep the power high for 30 reps, but it's also not so much time that you recover too much that your cardiovascular mm-hmm. strain or load or demand goes down. Mm-hmm. So they, they played around with various recovery periods ranging from 30 seconds to 15 and found that if you if you make it 15 seconds recovery you keep the percentage of vo2 max up in the 70s so it's actually it is actually quite an aerobically demanding activity because yeah. you're you're not resting too much yeah so if you're going to do if you're going to do this high intensity interval type stuff as a substitute short session instead of an aerobic session you you want to get that balance just right if you if you did six or seven seconds of sprinting and two minutes rest that's no longer an aerobic session it's purely sprinting based yeah and so that's the that's the key and the article has got some quite interesting discussion about that i think that was the other more technical element that comes out of this one of the interesting things about that is that there are a lot of um top sprinters and a lot of top runners who go and do these short sessions where they go into what they call aerobic intervals in other words the recovery gets them into a aerobic state and when they accelerate for more than you know six seven eight seconds they're actually not getting an aerobic at all they're getting they're staying in aerobic zone but they're mm. still building speed so they're building form through running without necessarily going anaerobic in the way that in the effort level that they go to yeah. so that's yeah. maybe just an offshoot of that but i know a lot of top endurance triathletes who do train like that where they literally do aerobic intervals which are short intervals yes yeah um and Semi-related to that, I saw a tweet the other day, some guy saying the two biggest trends in the in the US fitness and, and health at the moment are, number one, do more training at low intensities because it's it's good for your aerobic development, and number two, more high intensity sprint training. And he says both of these both of these are trends. <laughs> <He's And he's, laughs> so you can the point, the point is that the world is quite confused about how you get the spectrum of training intensities right. So yeah. and this this study fits into that because it's High intensity, but with aerobic benefits. Yeah. It's a little more complicated than maybe we used to think. Yeah. 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 So that leads on to a very interesting uh, topic that we that you've just got up next is exercise snacking. I mean, yes, is, actually, yeah. Is that's, yeah, a, that's an interesting... Uh, yeah. So, uh, it's, it's an extreme version of what we're talking about to some extent, isn't it? Yeah. So thanks for reminding me to mention that specifically. The, the study I mentioned where they made them do the, the three flights of stairs was a classic example of this exercise snacking concept, which apparently, I don't know this, was coined in 2014, exercise snacks to describe breaking up a single session of continuous exercise into several shorter bouts spread throughout the day. Now, in the context that they studied it and in the context that the media will pick it up, it's again, it's the kind of thing targeted to people who just cannot overcome the first barrier to getting out Mm. the door and exercising. So what they're saying is, all right, give me three minutes a day don't give me 30 minutes a day if you can't and don't want to and how do you give me three minutes a day 
you give me one minute three times <laughs> yeah. or you give me five minutes three times and call it 15. Another study that I saw showed that five minute walk three times a day also reduces the risk of disease and illness compared to just sitting. You know, sitting has been identified as like a major risk factor for poor health. It's, sure. at, it's, it's at the level of smoking. Sitting is the new smoking. Exactly. That's the, <laughs> that's the headline there. Yeah. And so anything you can do to break up a sitting routine is going to be beneficial. Mm -hmm. And whether you do that as a five-minute walk around the block at three occasions in the day, or whether you do it as one minute hard up and down the staircase in your office building, that's exercise snacking. Yeah. Again, it's to those of you who are on the bike or running or doing whatever structured training, this is going to sound very gimmicky, and it is. But it might be the gimmick to help a lot of people get a little bit of health benefit it's, it's trade-offs, right? Yeah. It's how much am I willing to put in and how much am I going to get out? Mm. And the point is, even a very little investment still gets you some benefit and might be the thing that you use to get more benefit future, in future. But yeah. I know that my watch every 45 minutes buzzes yeah. on my arm <laughs> yes. and says it's time to move. Do something. Even if my, I'm 130% over my daily yeah. allowance, but yeah. it shows the advantage of moving. So I agree and with you. As much as it sounds gimmicky, there are huge benefits for those who don't move at all. And what would be interesting mm. is, and I don't know if you'd ever be able to do this well or accurately, is over a year, if you take someone who sits for seven hours a day and who cycles for two as opposed to someone who sits for 45 minutes and then walks for 50, or for 55 minutes and walks for five every hour, who ends up in better health? <laughs> you know, does, does one big hard session of two hours make up for seven hours of constant sitting? Or is that sporadic, call it snacking, activity snacking? As well, we, we've got a mutual friend that uh, works as a personal trainer and sometimes he pops out and does a one kilometer run just to fire up the metabolism in the afternoon. Um, mm. So I guess it can be used, that snacking can happen at any level and it's a way of just yeah. keeping that metabolism fired up during the day. And I, I guess if you're moving or walking upstairs, there's a raising your heart rate has lots of benefits, not just yes. physical, but also yeah. mental as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. So yeah, so that's-, that's I, like the, I like the idea of exercise snacking. I'm just going to say it. Yeah, I well, think it's a great concept. Activity, for sure, activity yeah. snacking. Yeah. And there's no doubt, like I wish my mom and dad even, as yeah. they get older, would embrace that concept mm. and walk for one minute faster than they would be comfortable at mm. every day, mm. <laughs> twice a day, every yeah. day. Uh, it, yeah. would, it would be very good for their health at their mm. age to do that. Yeah. So it would be, obviously there are some risks. I mean, there always are with anything, mm -hmm. you, if, especially if you do higher intensity stuff. Mm -hmm. A four second all out sprint 30 times is not a fun session. No, it's not. It's not going to be enjoyable. You know, I would, I would actually prefer 30 minutes constant in terms of pain levels. Yes. But it, it, it can condense into nine and a half minutes. And so mm -hmm. it's a cool study and it's also cool to illustrate how three or four different threads all end up plugging into the same outlet, as it were. So and thanks yeah. for that, Dave. Yeah. yeah. Now, last week I uh, talked a little bit about my experience of watching the Zwift Academy in 2022, and I got Ross so excited about it that he went <laughs> and watched the whole thing himself. And uh, my comment at the time was that the wrong person won the Zwift Academy. On the woman's side. On the woman's side, yes. Mm. What, were, what were your thoughts? No, I 100% agree with you. I mean, last, last time when we spoke... And you told me why you thought that. I thought, I've got to watch this now because if, <laughs> if that's the case. So I watched it with two things in mind. Number one is I was looking for something that the Chiara, who's the Italian woman who didn't win, did she do something that you could justifiably say was so bad that she wouldn't win it? And the answer was no. 
Well, she's just old, her, supposedly. Yeah, but not even seven. like Van Floyden's 41. Mm. And you're only going to, and, and we said this last week, they're only going to offer a two or three year contract anyway. It's too big a risk. Mm. So, and if she's and if she's forty and on the decline, then you just end the contract there. Mm. So, so, give, so, so, so let's give some context to it. So, what yeah. we were saying is that there are the Zwift Academy is a whole bunch of riders who qualify on Zwift to eventually attend a final camp. And um, there's three men and three women, and eventually decide who of those there's two professional contracts on offer for one man and one woman, and they do a whole bunch of challenges. They do tactical challenges, they do sprinting, they do climbing, they do some Zwift stuff themselves, and eventually they come up with a winner. And in the end, what happened was a much younger British cyclist on the women's side got the contract as opposed to a 37-year-old who, in our opinion, was the better rider throughout mm. the week. Mm. Yeah. Now, so I'm looking, did she do something egregiously bad mm. that made them say, you know what, despite the fact that she's better going uphill, she won their the criterium race on Swift, she had better numbers from one minute all the way through to 10 in their little, they call it the insert test, I think they call it. Mm. Everything she had was maybe in, maybe in a straight up sprint fresh, the, the, the British girl was better. Mm. But everything she had was, was at least comparable. Her points of difference were way better and her points of parity were quite similar. And so, her climbing was and her climbing properly was, world class. Her point of difference was really good. Yeah, I mean, she, she was the fastest time ever up that uh, climb they did. The fastest climb, yeah. By a minute, over a minute. And the athletes she beat were are pro cyclists. Mm. So we'll come to that in a moment. So that, that didn't sit well with me. Um, but then, you know, I was thinking at the time, imagine you had a time machine and you could do a Zwift Academy at different stages in the careers of Vote for Art, um, Mark Cavendish, and say a good climber, but not Pogaccio or Vinegar, like David Gaudu or uh, Guillaume Martin, you know? Mm. Martin and Gaudu would beat Cavendish and Vote for Art on climbs comfortably. Mm. They would be in the frame in a sprint, but you would never pick them ahead of Van Art or Cavendish because you'd want a specialist as opposed to a merely good all-rounder. You know, mm. you know, you mm. see what I'm getting at? Yeah. So the key question for them would have to be, and this is what I was most annoyed by in the final episode, is it's not necessarily the comparison between Chiara and Alex and the other girl was uh, the German girl whose name yeah, I've forgotten. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, that's not necessarily what you want to compare. You want to take Kiara and you want to benchmark her against elite cyclists. Mm. Is she going to fit well into the pro tour? Is Alex going to fit well into them? And that, that comparison's never really made well on the show, which mm. I find quite disappointing. Mm. The, the answer, of course, is that Kiara does fit well in with the pro cyclists because she's faster than them on the climb. Mm. And when they asked, <laughs> they asked Magnus Backstead and the other, the other director from that Canyon team in the final interview, would Kiara fit in? And they were all cagey, like, yeah, I don't know. We'll have to look at the power numbers and so forth and make sure about that. And then they ask about Alex and would she fit in? Yeah, her sprint power was definitely in there with the like that. That was the that to me was the most revealing thing. And it's that competition was set up for Alex to win it. Yeah, the whole show looked to me like a front to arrive at a final decision. Mm. And and okay, now I've got some confirmation bias because you I knew who wasn't going to win, but all throughout the show I was picking up how they were downplaying certain strengths and up, mm. and up, up playing, as it were, other people's strengths. It just, it just seemed like the outcome had been predetermined and they were not going to pick the Italian woman, no matter how good she was. Yeah. Because everything she did suggests that she would fit into the pro women's tour very well. Yeah. yeah. More, better than the other athletes. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing that really hacked me off was <laughs> they didn't show us the results. So like we've got no yeah, the real stats. Yeah. So so like the the the, the test they did remember is one minute, three, 
a six and a 10. Mm. That's going to be used to produce that power curve, power duration curve, which then tells you your aerobic, your anaerobic, your W prime. And then they reckon they've got a whole bunch of predictions they can make off that around VO2 max and sustainable power thresholds, et cetera, right? That's yeah. the point. Yeah. We know that Kiara was way better than the other three at that point, but we don't know what the numbers were. Mm. So we have no ability to compare her to what we know it takes to be a pro cyclist. Mm. Why would they not show that? Mm. Anyway, the whole thing looked rigged to me. Yeah, it, it did. <laughs> I was, I, I was very you annoyed what, by the end. But I'll tell you who was most annoyed was Kiara because a couple of times the ca the camera sort of pans over yes. uh, during the winning celebration here, and Kiara, you can see her face yeah. just yeah. absolutely drops. I mean, she doesn't have an Oscar face at all no, in that situation. No. She wasn't yeah, capping was... or cheering for the winner. I anyway, think she like, was disappointed herself. Yes, yeah. we now we sound like now we sound like teenagers <laughs> watching Idols here. We like, but I, but I was I it's watched our version it. of it. Yeah. I watched it through the lens of knowing who wasn't going to be picked and I was deeply disappointed in mm. how they set it up and what it came across as. It just did not come across like a fair shake to discover who was the best cycle. I think they were picking who they wanted to yeah. and everything else was just incidental. And then, and then on the men's side, I think they clearly picked the best of the three remaining you know, after they lost the young British kid with COVID yeah. and the Aussie guy voted off or removed. But those two guys from Alps and Phoenix did not look like they wanted to be there. Yeah, they 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 genuinely looked like this. After the first day, they thought these are all all four of these blokes are duds. We're not really interested, and they, it looked mm. like it was a real burden for them to to have to pick one of them in the yeah. end. You know, <laughs> so, I mean, so that's quite funny to watch. I mean, the reality is that they have had some success with it, as we know with the yes, Australian yeah. Joe Vine, who yeah. won a stage of the Vuelta, as we discussed last week. You know, so they have had success with it. So, but it'll be interesting to see whether the but athletes that come out of 2022 do anything. What's Jay Vine's numbers and performances yeah. compared to the guy they picked? Yeah. Is he is he considerably better? Like mm. that Luca guy they said was one minute slower than Pogaccia on that climb mm. Mm. all the way to the top. Now, maybe that's Pogaccia doing a, a base level training ride. And mm. had he gone harder, he'd have been two minutes faster. Yeah. Now it's a big difference. But one minute mm. off Pogaccia is not that bad. Mm. But they, they just seemed and very... And depending on the Pogaccia was going up there in a race where it was tactical. Correct. You don't know. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's... And, just, and the context matters. Back to the woman. Like they set that up. Mm. with a, It was a three-hour ride and mm. they had their pro cyclists dragging them. Mm. Then they let them go on the climb to race it. And Kiara went from the bottom. So yeah. for her, it was all out, but off the back of three hours. Yeah. So I would have thought that a, a time better than many pros off the back of that... Mm is a very impressive performance. Yeah. But again, we never get to see actual numbers, so we mm. just have to take their word for it and I didn't trust their, yeah. <laughs> their word for it. So I thought it was I thought it was overall quite poor. Yeah. Well, we'll see whether yeah. the res the results um whether they do anything next year, which I think will be very interesting whether yeah. and, and whether Kiara gets a contract with somebody else potentially. Which, yeah, pick, put her yeah. in there and yeah. it'll I think straight away. Yeah. She, she may not be top 20 finishers mm. in a in a climbing stage of the the Giro mm. or the Women's mm. Tour de France, but mm. uh, she'd mm. be. Whereas maybe Alex is going to be top five in a sprint. Yeah, who knows? Exactly. But uh, it didn't it's feel a, like that to me. Idols for cycling. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> good times. Talking about cycling, uh, one of the news items of this week: Richard Freeman, uh, who was the Sky Doctor, he's been uh, properly done now after being through a quite a heavy court case, and um, he's now. Been banned. What is a medical practitioners practitioners tribunal service yeah. in the UK? Eventually got uh, got him done. So that's of course, but costs a huge 
a lot of suspicion over the sky performances of 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 the past to some extent doesn't it yeah i mean this is a trial that's been carrying on for 175 years now yeah, so it, it feels, seems to go. It feels that i can't way. keep up with it to be honest yeah i lost interest a while back because <laughs> it was on then it was postponed then it was on then it was postponed because of health issues back again not on eventually he gets a ban his license his license gets revoked because he ordered steroids knowing they'd be for a cyclist. So that's the reason. He appealed that, and that's now the verdict that came out the other day. Yeah. What this does is it opens the next case, which is going to be the UK anti-doping case against him. Now, will that show anything more than we've already discovered? I mean, there have been so many arguments made, lawyers involved, witnesses, and famously Shane Sutton, because Freeman said that he'd ordered the testosterone for Sutton to improve his sexual performance. And Sutton said, listen, if it, that was the case, I'd have no problems. But <laughs> yes. you can ask, remember that? He said, you can ask my, ask wife. my wife. I've yes. got no issues at all. <laughs> and so, so there's that. I mean, is anything more going to come out from a UK anti-doping investigation? Mm. In my experience, the anti-doping authorities are less effective at compelling people to testify than official channels like mm. the medical tribunal or heaven forbid legal authorities or, or criminal investigations like the fbi mm. with the armstrong case that's what blew that open yeah. so i don't i don't particularly think there's a turning point or anything more to come i just think it's just going to be drawn out and drawn out and we all know there was dodgy stuff mm. we all know, it's we just don't know what it was and i'm not i'm no. not convinced we're going to discover any more as a yeah. result of the next installment of the freeman uh <laughs> Or somebody nudge us awake when it's if it restarts again, so we yeah. can keep if up. If anything new happens, let us know. yeah, let us know yeah. exactly. Yeah. Anyway, on to the subject of the day today, and this is a, a very special guest that we've been trying to get onto the podcast for probably a good year or more, and he's a very busy man, so it's been quite tricky to to get hold of him. But we finally got him onto the podcast, and the reason why is because. The discussion around the sporting heart is always a very interesting and fascinating one. We've alluded to many different aspects of the heart in various podcasts in the in in the last couple of years, but we needed to get somebody on who really understood the physiology, the conditions, and some of the challenges, and also the current stuff that's happening around COVID and and uh, and the vaccines mm. and all the stuff that comes out of that. So we got hold of a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Dresner. He is a family medicine physician who specialises in sports medicine sports medicine and sports cardiology uh, his clinical interests include sports medicine musculoskeletal health sports cardiology cardiovascular screening and prevention concussions and platelet rich plasma for chronic musculoskeletal conditions so he's a man who knows a lot about the sporting context he's a director of the washington university medicine center for sports cardiology and co-chair of the washington university medicine cardiovascular wellness and prevention program he's also the editor-in-chief of the british journal of sports medicine and serves as a team physician for the seattle seahawks Owl rain and uw huskies so a man who has lots of interests and uh, it really is i think if you're going to have one discussion about one organ of the body mm. this is the guy if as you said in the in we were leading up to this discussion if you're going into his office and you've got a heart condition this is a guy who will make you feel like he knows what he's doing oh yeah he? well there's no doubt <laughs> and just from that bio you can appreciate why it's been so difficult to pin him down <laughs> i don't know he must be working on a 43 hour day or something um <laughs> And it's been, it literally has been since our first season that we've wanted to explore this topic. Um, 
And then last year, for instance, he was out in South Africa. He's come out here a couple of times to yeah. speak at our conferences. He's got very good relationships with a number of doctors and researchers here in this country. So consider him a friend of the countries. I sat I had dinner with him when he was out here. I spoke at the same event. And I said to him again, I was like, I'm desperate to get you on. We couldn't get it done last year. And then, what was it now? Three weeks ago, the Damar Hamlin cardiac arrest happened. I thought, okay, that's my reminder. Have to get him on. And so this... This conversation you're about to hear is, is, is about the heart, but it's actually quite focused on the topic about the heart. There's other stuff we might yet cover someday about mm. heart attacks and heart disease and whether too much endurance training can damage the heart. What, what this is about is cardiac arrest and mm. when, when young athletes die and it's startling and it shocks us and you just had to, you just had to watch the reaction to the DeMar Hamlin case to see how surprised people are when it happens. And I guess the reason for doing the pod is it's sad to say it's not all that uncommon <laughs> it happens yeah. it happens often enough that it needs to be addressed i mean when i when i was 15 guy that i ran with collapsed and died on a training run a guy called sure. johnny johnny to blanche and it just transpired that he'd had a he'd had a viral infection he'd had the flu for a couple of weeks back it was his first run back and he had a cardiac arrest secondary to that. And you'll hear about that in this podcast. Yeah, and whether there actually is a risk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, David Epstein wrote a really excellent piece on his Range Widely newsletter. And he tells a story about he also knows someone who he trained with who, who collapsed and died of cardiac arrest. I've no doubt you know someone mm. of someone. Mm. Everyone's got a story. And you know, the, the fact of the matter is that every year in the US where it's documented maybe the best, it happens in between 150 and 200 young athletes mm. that we know of. So that's, while rare, yeah. given that there are millions of people, they reckon the incidence is one per 50,000 per year. So if there are 50,000 people doing a sport every year, there's likely to be one of these cardiac deaths. Now imagine if there are 5 million, 50 million yeah. around the world. So they Some of his stats about um, the incidences mm. of congenital heart problems yeah. in young athletes is... Quite surprising. Exactly. Um, which, which we'll hear so, about. So it pays for you to know like why they happen, when they happen, and maybe most importantly, is what do you do if you've got a condition, yeah. and what do you do if it happens to someone on the field with you? Now, mm. In other words, screening, prevention, treatment. And that's what we really hope you, you get out of this interview. So let's get to the heart of the matter with uh, Jonathan Dresner. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Right, so John, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. I know that uh, Ross has been uh, at you for about two years uh, for us to get you on the podcast. Finally, we've managed to make it happen after all this time. So uh, welcome. Whereabouts are you at the moment? I'm in Seattle, Washington. Thanks so much for having me. And is it nice and chilly there, I guess, in your, in your winter there? It is. It's our winter here in the U.S. and uh, it's rainy and cold and I uh, wish we had a little more sunshine right now. Now, we're quite lucky because Ross has said that you've been to South Africa a few times. I mean, you're a bit of a, a friend of the country. What, what, what brings you to South Africa so regularly? 
uh, been to South Africa twice, and it was just a, a, a lovely experience all around. Uh, first was in 2015 for the SASMA conference and a little time in Kruger afterwards, uh, hosted by John Patricius. And then the second time was uh, this past March in 2022 for the Sports and Exercise Medicine Conference at UWITS, and it was uh, just a terrific meeting. Yeah. Now, let's just kind of define, you mentioned well, before we came on the podcast that you obviously got lots of different elements of your job. You're a cardiologist, a researcher, kind of divide up what your average week looks like in terms of what your day-to-day -day job is and, and, and what is it? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, um, so I'm not a cardiologist. I'm a sports and exercise medicine physician with a strong interest in sports cardiology. Um, I direct our Center for Sports Cardiology at the University of Washington in Seattle, which is a nice collaboration between sports medicine and cardiology uh, to take care of, you know, athlete heart issues from young to old. Um, I'm a team physician at the University of Washington, as well as a team physician for two of our uh, local professional teams. One is the Seattle Seahawks and NFL, American style football. Um, and the other is OL Reign, which is our women's professional soccer team uh, here in Seattle. Um, and then probably my uh, largest undertaking right now is I'm editor in chief of the British Journal of Sports Medicine. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's obviously a, a fairly big job as well, and all on its own, really, isn't it? Absolutely. It feels like a full-time job, but it's a, it's a wonderful <laughs> position. John, out of interest, how many, how many papers are submitted to the journal per month now? I mean, what are you, what are you processing there? Well, annually, we get about 1,500 manuscripts uh, per year submitted. And so, um, you know, um, somewhere between 150 and 200 uh, manuscripts are coming in uh, monthly. And our acceptance rate for original investigations is about 8%. Um, our impact factor is up over 18, and uh, we just have a superb uh, editorial board and team and um, researchers and, and authors around the globe who are submitting. So we're, we're, we're grateful for all the quality work that's coming in. Yeah, you might might be a couple of those 1,500 yeah. will be mine in coming months. We need, to, we need to get a copy of a publication because there's obviously tons of stuff in there for us as well, Ross. Yep. Yep, always. <laughs> just, uh, I'm always interested to know. So obviously, you've you've got an interest in the cardio, the card, the cardio side, the cardiology side of the business. What what drew you into that that space particularly? Was there something that happened that made you more interested in that than the other elements of um, your your job? Yeah, Mike, that's a really good question, and I, I've I've reflected on that. You know, my my very first exposure to sports cardiology was in medical school. I was a medical student at, at UCLA in Los Angeles. And it was in my fourth year, I was doing a sports medicine like elective as a medical student. And someone came in and gave a lecture on athlete's heart. And for me, it connected all the dots. My, my favorite rotation in medical school was our um, uh, critical care cardiology unit. Um, and I knew I was going into family medicine. I knew I was interested in sports medicine. And suddenly this concept of athlete's heart and sort of the physiologic changes that occur to for an athlete who's engaged in regular intense exercise and differentiating those from pathologic conditions that can cause sudden cardiac death, it, it just connected all the dots for me. When I was in undergraduate school years before, uh, I played basketball in college at Brown University. And it was my, um, I think, uh, senior year or junior year when there was a, a terrible incident with Hank Gathers. 
And so at the time, I think it was 91, Hank Gathers was arguably the best college basketball player in the United States. And on public TV in a, in a conference um, uh, playoff game, he collapsed with cardiac arrest and unfortunately didn't survive. And it was a very traumatic event for those who saw it. It felt a little close to home with basketball. Um, fast forward to medical school and the, the athlete's heart issue and, and the other cases that were now being promoted for sudden death and athletes like Len Bias at the time. Um, and, and suddenly I found something I was very passionate about, which was prevention of, of sudden death in athletes. Did they ever find out what was the cause of death in, in that, on that occasion? For Hank Gathers? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Hank Gathers had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Mm, okay. Something that we will explore in yeah. this podcast in a few minutes. And yeah. actually a, a fairly lengthy story about that because Gathers, it was known that he had some cardiac issues, I believe. And um, oftentimes it's not the first, the first sign of a problem is the cardiac arrest, but in his case, it wasn't. So there was a little yeah. bit of backstory to that in that particular case. Absolutely. We, we can certainly go, go into that more. I think that mm -hmm. he, he was known to have a heart condition and what happened was after his collapse, they made a decision to resuscitate him out of public view. And that, that delay, I think, um, was part of the issue, you know, we should be mindful that back then this was not on the radar as much as it is now. So for instance, uh, automated external defibrillators were not available <laughs> um, at the time, even though I'm, I believe they had a manual defibrillator um, somewhere in the arena. Um, but anyway, so our, our response to the collapsed athlete, we've learned quite a bit from some of the tragic cases, unfortunately. Mm, it actually tees up because we want to, in this podcast, talk about some of those causes, the risk factors, and then end up on that treatment. So actually that that sets the stage quite nicely to explore the, the meat, get to the heart of it, as it were. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, you and Ross are obviously talking it from a medical side, and I, I was kind of talking through with Ross before we did the podcast, trying to get a sense of some of the medical terms. And I think maybe we can kick off with this by talking about what the difference is between a, a cardiac arrest and a heart attack. So people understand mm. why there is a difference and why we're going to be focusing on one and not the other. Absolutely. So, so cardiac arrest is an electrical problem of the heart um, where the heart stops pumping effectively. Usually this is a, a lethal ventricular arrhythmia where the heart tends to quiver or flutter rather than pump effectively to the rest of the body. A heart attack is different. A heart attack has to do with the plumbing system of the heart. It has to do with the small arteries that feed the working muscle with oxygenated blood. And in a heart attack, they get clogged usually from rupture of an atherosclerotic cholesterol plaque. Um, and suddenly the, the working heart muscle doesn't receive the oxygen that it needs. And it becomes what we call ischemic. And that causes pain, usually chest pain and a, and a syndrome that we know is a heart attack. A heart attack can lead to an arrhythmia and sudden cardiac arrest. So it is one source of sudden cardiac arrest, but the two are very different. And when we talk about young, otherwise healthy athletes, it's usually sudden cardiac arrest. We're not talking about uh, heart attacks that uh, are more common in, in older individuals. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's, if you're talking about younger athletes, so for the purposes of this discussion, we're talking about cardiac arrest and why they happen. Now, just give us a bit of a broad summary about 
and Ross showed me a little uh, a little uh, form before we got into, on air now. I'm talking about you've got abnormal and you've got um, normal hearts and you've got things that are congenital and some things that are not. Just breaks down and, into the various conditions that can potentially kill you, but with your heart. John, it's a table. I think you were, I think you might've been an author on the paper. So you, you probably made the table. So no one better to talk about, but it's, uh, it might be from a Harmon paper that summarizes the, the sort of 10 year work that you've done in that care consortium. And, that, and that's the one I showed Mike before. Yeah, absolutely. You know, every, every paper on etiology of sudden cardiac arrest or sudden cardiac death in young athletes has a particular pie graph. Um, and that pie graph has almost 20 entities of conditions known to uh, be associated with sudden cardiac death in young athletes. Um, if we want to group some of those conditions, we can group them into um, genetic structural conditions like heart muscle diseases or cardiomyopathy. So we mentioned one hypertrophic cardiomyopathy being the, the most common of that group, but other entities are in that group as well. Um, dilated cardiomyopathy or arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy would be other um, uh, examples. There are also uh, inheritable electrical diseases of the heart, like ion channel disorders. So the most common of which would be long QT syndrome. Another that is a source of sudden cardiac arrest in, in young persons, specifically in, in uh, children and young adolescents is catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia or CPVT. Um, there are acquired heart conditions like myocarditis um, or early atherosclerotic uh, heart disease. There's also uh, other uh, electrical conditions of the heart like Wolf-Parkinson-White, which is uh, pre-excitation with a accessory pathway that connects the electrical signal between the atria and the ventricles that can go um, uh, haywire in certain, uh, in certain circumstances. So all in all, I, I think that there are, um, you know, structural and electrical and acquired heart conditions, and they vary. Because they vary, it makes it challenging sometimes to identify before there's a problem. So screening becomes more challenging when there's not just one condition that you're looking for. And no screen will identify every single condition sort of on that broad list. Uh, of problems. That was that's what we were discussing before about how do we get to the point where people can find out first of all do they have any of these conditions congenitally, and if they are developing them, do you have regular screenings? I mean, is is there the more common conditions are they are they easier to screen for down the line, and is there things like doing genetic tests which which can tell somebody if they are likely to have these conditions? Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think genetic testing is ready for prime time for screening. I think it's a, it's a diagnostic test that helps you with, with uh, what's going on in uncertain circumstances or perhaps in screening family members of someone who's had uh, a heart event. So I don't think genetic testing is going to be the answer. Um, you know, there are conditions that are present from birth. Um, and then those that develop later. And so the ones that develop later, you might have a genetic predisposition, but variable penetrance or, or variable expression, meaning that it occurs later. So hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a perfect example. 75% um, of patients with HCM have an, a known pathologic gene mutation when you test for them but they don't express that gene. They, their heart actually doesn't grow or thicken or become abnormal 
usually until adolescence or, or young adulthood. And so maybe as early as age 10, maybe mostly occurring um, in late adolescence and young adulthood. And so you could potentially not have the disorder when you're 14 and have it when you're 18. And, and that, that tells us that the kids need not just one screen, but they need serial screening to look at that. In contrast, something like anomalous coronary arteries, where the anatomy of the coronary arteries that feed that oxygen to the working heart muscle is, is different or is off. Anomalous coronary arteries are actually the leading cause of sudden cardiac death in middle school athletes and very young adolescents. Um, they're born with this. It tends to uh, cause a problem um, such as syncope, chest pain, or possibly sudden death in, in middle school or in, in adolescence. Um, they've had it forever. And, and a single screen looking for those is, is would be enough, but is also more difficult because requires more expensive cardiac imaging. Mm. So, I mean, I want to get onto how this eventually presents and what those risks are. But while we're on this, let's talk about the risk of these conditions causing something as opposed to the risk of these conditions being found in someone who presents with cardiac arrest. And I hope listeners appreciate the difference. If, if I have the screen for any of the conditions you've just spoken about, how high is that risk? Because it would affect my calculus as to whether I should continue to play a sport or not, or be physically active or not. Absolutely. So, so let's talk about the difference between the prevalence of these heart conditions and the incidence or risk of sudden cardiac death, you know, with yes, them. that's the, that's the key. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so the, the, the prevalence all told, if you take all of those conditions and you add them up in our young athlete population, the prevalence is actually reasonably high and somewhat surprising. So about one in 300 athletes, one in 300 athletes, when you do screening that includes an electrocardiogram like EKG, has one of these conditions that places them at elevated risk of sudden death. Thankfully, wow. one in 300 athletes don't go on to have an event. Right. And so just because you have the disease does not mean you, you go on to have sudden cardiac arrest. Yeah. And, and that risk is higher in certain disorders and perhaps lower in other disorders. So the, there's a wide spectrum that's based on not just the the disorder itself, but the severity and the features of that disorder and in that individual. So for instance, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in some individuals um, can have features that are very high risk and other features that would be considered lower risk. Um, something like arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, um, everyone considers very high risk. And so there's, and, and then you ask, well, what does that mean? What, is, what does high risk mean? And so you know, once you're diagnosed with that disorder, you're now in a higher risk group. And if you have something like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the general estimate is that your risk of sudden cardiac arrest is about 1% per year. And so, you know, that, that's pretty tangible. I mean, that, that mm. should make an athlete and a family and a team physician and a coach and a school sort of you know, take pause and really think through for that individual, their values and preferences and sort of what's most important and walk through a decision that is right for them because sports does create some increased risk. 
you can also have risk outside of sport. And so some, just because you stop playing sport doesn't mean you're not going to have an event either. And so right. it's a very complex area, but I would say for a disorder like HCM, you know, about, about 1% per year um, may go on to have an event. So that's, that's one in a hundred. Um, I've seen estimates that are one in 50, one in 200, but, but in general, you're now in a higher risk group. Mm -hmm. I, I guess the question is then if, if you've got a situation where somebody has been uh, screened and found to have one of these conditions, if they are told they can't do sport, is there a, a lower level of activity that you advise? I mean, obviously these conditions are all different, but I can imagine if you don't do anything active wise, you're also putting yourself at risk by putting on weight, et cetera, et cetera, which will increase your risk. How do you, is, is that the balancing act? In other words, to say to somebody, you're right, you've got a high risk. We don't want you going and competing in, in a, a high intensity cycling, but it's fine to play bowls and go for hikes and walks. Is that kind right. of the thing that you, that you treat these people with? I think that's part of it, Mike. And I think that's a common misconception. So an athlete who decides not to play or is medically disqualified from sport is not necessarily a sedentary individual. So we're talking about competitive, intense exercise versus physical activity for health. And so there, there are um, what's thought to be safer recommendations for individuals with some of these genetic heart conditions, for instance. And you want these individuals to stay healthy and stay moving. And so I think that's a concern. You don't want them to become obese or develop diabetes or have other health conditions, um, you know, et cetera. But there is some level of exercise that can, that, that is considered healthy. You know, some of these conditions also can be identified and cured. And so you get something like wolf parkinson white or pre-excitation and in the right individual um, through an ablation in the heart, that disorder is now cured. It's gone. You identify someone with anomalous coronary arteries and there are some surgical solutions to that. And again, that individual now carries a different risk and returns to sport with, with no risk or, or significantly lower risk. Um, and in some conditions, um, like anomalous coronary arteries, it is the peak exertion that is the problem. And so if they're not having surgical correction, there are gonna be other levels of, of exercise that would be considered safer. Yeah, I, I get, I get, sorry, Ross, just yeah. before Ross continues, I think one of the great questions that always comes at us in, I mean, I'm, I'm involved with Runners World and Bicycling Magazine. If, if here in Runners World in South Africa, if somebody dies at a, at a major running event, immediately the, the question is, does running cause people to die suddenly on, on, in a running event? Maybe we could just address that question and talk about does exercise cause these problems and maybe look at the stats against the general population when it comes to this sort of thing? Mm. Yeah. So, you know, exercise is not the cause of their heart condition, but exercise can be a trigger for sudden cardiac arrest in individuals who have an underlying heart condition. And so, yes, intense exercise and exercise uh, undoubtedly can lead to these potentially lethal arrhythmias in individuals who have an underlying heart condition. And when you compare, you know, those minutes or hours of exercise during the day versus the uh, hours of the day where you're at rest or at sleep, um, you know, that time period when you're exercising is higher risk. And so 
it depends on the condition, but but I would generally think that exercise can be a trigger for individuals with underlying heart conditions. Mm -hmm. And so the problem then is that the catastrophic event, tragic event happens in the spotlight of the thing that's meant to be the healthiest thing a person could possibly do. Yeah. And then it attracts like disproportionate negative criticism and people who justify their own laziness for saying, look at that, look at that risk. Yeah. It's actually, and and, and this does actually expand because the cause of death at say a marathon, often those are 50 something year old athletes who've got heart attack related issues like atherosclerosis, right? Mm. So we're, we're now expanding a little bit our causes of death to include a whole bunch of conditions that are very obviously improved by exercise. So the answer to those people is overall exercise will make you less likely to die. But if you are, it's the thing that's saving you that's going to cause it <laughs> paradoxically. <laughs> it's a tricky one. Yeah, that's that's exactly right, Ross. And and it's been it's been coined the exercise paradox, right? Yeah. So where exercise clearly is, you know, our best medicine, our best form of prevention. We want everyone to be doing physical activity and exercise for for health. Um, but in some individuals with these heart conditions. It can actually increase their um, their risk of a catastrophic event, um, and and that's why early detection becomes very important through screening, so you can intervene or lower risk. And also um, on the other side, why emergency planning and the availability of AEDs becomes so important in the the locations where individuals are exercising. Yeah. Yeah. So the point I was going to make, and it comes back to that screening issue now, is it's a, it's a major ethical issue in professional sports, is when you've identified a condition, does professional sport have the ability to indemnify that athlete and continue to select them? There's a case in South Africa right now of a pretty high-profile rugby player who was told that he had to retire because he had one of these conditions. And he found contrasting medical opinion that said, no, you, you're at risk, but we can justify that risk because you're a professional athlete and it's your choice ultimately. So John, I guess the, the question is, I know you're heavily involved in screening and policy formation in, in sport in the US. At, at, at what point does sport um, have to say to an athlete, no, this is just, we, we can't accept that risk, <laughs> even if you want to. Yeah. Where, where do you draw that line in the sand? Yeah. Um, I'd say over the last 30 years, that, that line in the sand ha- has moved. And, and has changed, and I think it's still evolving. So if you go back 20 and 30 years, the, the early recommendations for individuals with these heart conditions was universal mandatory exclusion from competitive sport with, with no exceptions. And fast forward to today, and I think most individuals are approached with a shared decision-making model where you're talking about the, the evidence that we do have, their risk, understanding you know, their own values and preferences where exercise falls for them, which may be very different for a professional rugby player versus let's say a young adolescent rugby player who still has time to redirect their efforts and where life is going for them and 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 how they identify as a as a person and perhaps their their livelihood moving moving forward. And so all of this is I think weighed weighed together. Having said that, I still think there are conditions out there where universally the medical community will, um, you know, discourage athletes from continuing playing competitive sports or perhaps draw that line in the sand and, and disqualify them. And, but that bar, that bar has changed. And so the, the one that to me still 
um, stands uh, above the bar with too high a risk is arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, where exercise not only is clearly shown to induce these lethal arrhythmias, but also disease progression. So the, the more they exercise intensely, the faster they may get sick later on in life with heart failure. And continuing playing competitive sports is simply just not the right thing for them. A disease that has really, I would say, um, uh, exemplified the evolution of this, this issue is long QT syndrome. So long QT syndrome is an ion channel disorder. It's an electrical disorder of the heart. And everyone used to be disqualified for it. And I would say, you know, through research and evidence, uh, um, largely done by uh, Mike Ackerman at Mayo Clinic in the U.S., there are now reasonable size uh, observational cohorts that show when you manage these individuals, for instance, with beta blockers or other interventions or an ICD, that you don't have cases of sudden death, even in the athletes. And so now it's about detection, management, and return to play where you think they are safer. And so I think that's a, a disorder where Everyone used to be disqualified, and now everyone sort of is identified, managed, and returns to play. Mm. And then you have a disorder like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that, to me, still sort of sits in the gray zone in the middle. Um, depends on the features of the disease. Depends on the the, the, the cardiologist who's giving you um, guidance on whether or not they really believe in returning to play versus uh, that everyone should stop playing competitive sports. Mm. And the country you're in. So one example, and this is where it gets interesting legally, is Christian Eriksson, who I'm sure John knows the case of listeners will, because we've brought it up a couple of yeah. times. Uh, cardiac arrest playing for Denmark in the Euros. He then recovered and wanted to make a comeback. He was playing for an Italian team. They wouldn't allow him to play. He's now playing yeah. in England for Manchester United. So, And that's with certain treatments. So he's got an ICD. We might, we might get onto that and how they work. But yeah, it's just interesting to understand how even countries have different perceptions of this risk equation and the, the trade-offs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, in, and, in, and in Italy, it's it's written into their law. So so yeah. athletes with these heart conditions are not allowed to play. So right. the, the, the decision is, is removed there. Um, but you're right. He, he did return to play with an ICD. Yeah. Well, what would you advise people? I mean, first of all, how do I know if I'm at risk? And if I am at risk, what do I do? And how do I test? In other words, if my parents have got something like this, I'm at a high, I'm a high risk. And if I do test, do I test when I'm a, a teenager and then every five years after that? Is it like going to the dentist and trying to make sure that you have a regular checkup if you're at risk? I'm just interested to know people that are listening to this going like, okay, you know, there, there's some there's a problem within our family. I've got a little Johnny who's 14 years old. Let's check him out. Is it is that yeah. possible? Yeah, absolutely. So Maybe we can divide this into into sort of younger athletes and maybe you know older athletes or older individuals who like to exercise because the, the the risk factors and the type of screen and evaluation is really quite different. Um, and so, and then the first thing I would say is in the scenario that you brought up, you know, in in any individual who has a family history of a, a heart condition and specifically an uh, inheritable or genetic heart condition or a condition that caused uh, sudden cardiac arrest or perhaps sudden death before the age of 40 or 50, you know, that individual should for sure see their physician and be evaluated within that context. And I, I think that becomes um, a, a fairly uh, robust evaluation in someone with that type of family history. 
the other individual that I think also requires a fairly um, intensive screen is in someone with symptoms. And so if you're exercising and you have exercise related chest pain, sort of regardless of your um, your age, if you've passed out with exercise, if you're feeling your heart race when it shouldn't, you know, th those are reasons that you should be seeing your, your physician and having an evaluation that's sort of driven by the symptoms and level of concern. So, so out of those contexts, if you're just a parent and you're worried about your child and you're like, I'm worried that my child may have one of these conditions and I don't know it. And that's a, that, that, that is a, a, a concern that I think is reasonable. We, we know that of the young athletes who do go on to have sudden cardiac arrest, up to 80% of them don't have any signs or symptoms or warning features that they actually have a heart condition. So their cardiac arrest could be the, the first feature or the first um, presentation of their heart condition. Um, in the U.S., is that, is we, that because they is that because they haven't tested, or they potentially have tested but it hasn't been picked up? Uh, well, I, I don't think it has to do with testing. I think it has to do with the condition that these conditions may not cause symptoms, and but, and then their first symptom might be actually that they collapse with an arrhythmia and enter in cardiac arrest. Mm. In in the U.S., we have something called the pre-participation physical evaluation, or a, you know, a sports physical. Um, FIFA calls it the pre-competition medical assessment. I, I think most um, sports associations and countries require that their athletes have some form of medical evaluation before um, um, participating in competitive sport. That's usually an annual evaluation. It could be maybe every two years. And in this evaluation, I think there are different components of it. You know, you're asking about these warning symptoms, you're asking about family history, you're doing a physical exam, but in a, in a general screen, none of those are very good tools to identify people at risk, since most people don't have symptoms or the family history and the exam is typically normal. And so in the right setting, if you're a qualified, let's say sports and exercise physician or a cardiologist, you could do an electrocardiogram or an ECG. Um, you know, it's a non-invasive procedure, it allows you to, to look under the hood, so to speak, and, and, and get more information about the heart. An ECG can detect about two thirds of the conditions that might put a young athlete at risk of sudden death. So it's not perfect, but it's quite a bit better than a history and physical. The, the challenge for the ECG is that it requires, you know, sort of training and experience and a, and a detailed look at how you interpret the ECG to make sure you're not calling athletic heart changes abnormal and doing unnecessary testing. And so you, you, you do need to, to know what you're doing if you're going to get an ECG. And at least in the U.S., this is where we fall short um, in our infrastructure to provide this broadly to our adolescent community. In, in the college sports setting, we're, we're better at it, and all of our professional athletes get ECGs. So I don't think there's an argument that ECG, um, you know, is the – is the wrong choice. I think I think there's an argument in who can do it and who 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 can actually provide it. Um, and when you do ECG, you're basically providing a, a more in-depth screen for the same purpose as like a history and physical. The purpose is still that early detection of a condition that puts them at risk. If we flip to an older individual or an athlete, let's say you know who's 40, 50 years old and wants to participate in running or running their 10K or, or a marathon, et cetera, you know, that evaluation is quite different. Um, what you're really looking for is, is atherosclerotic coronary disease. And 
you know, the screen is going to be a, a good family history, a laboratory evaluation looking at risk factors for heart disease, you know, a lipid profile, diabetes screen, you know, we use inflammatory markers like CRP. Um, and then uh, we also do a, a, an ECG. And then I think one tool that has emerged in looking for um, coronary artery disease is a coronary artery calcium score. It's a CT scan that measures um, calcium within the atherosclerotic plaque in the coronary artery. So it gives you a true measure of the burden of atherosclerosis. And that burden or the score uh, can be risk stratified and that can help you guide management. And I think in our athletes, it's been very helpful in our, in our master's level athletes to, to have that kind of test, um, especially for people maybe with borderline conditions. You know, they've always been told their blood pressure is on the fence and borderline or they're, they're not sure they should start a medicine for their cholesterol. So a, a really low calcium score may give them reassurance and one that's intermediate or high may push them towards medication to lower the risk factor. So um, we use that in, in our practice. But, you know, again, you're, you're looking for different conditions. So in the older individual, that coronary disease, and in the younger individual, some of these structural and electrical problems that are that are largely genetic so the screen takes a different format mm -hmm. yeah so back to the younger athletes stress ecg you say it's done in professional athletes in the u.s i think many professional athletes around the world will now do those not all but it's done but is, it a, is it a stress ecg or is it just lying on your back and having the pros done i mean do you, do, you, do you put people on a treadmill and get them to exercise at a high intensity how do you do an ecg we, we don't know. It's a, it's just a resting 12 lead ECG is the uh, screen. Okay. Um, a stress ECG would be something that would be more diagnostic. There's a, there's a couple exceptions to that. Like for instance, in, in Italy, their screening protocol has a sort of a moderate exertion bike mm. ECG where they look for premature ventricular contractions and, and other potential ventricular arrhythmias, but, but that is not widely available. And in, in Italy, they have, uh, you know, just a, a much more robust infrastructure to do screening like that. So a stress ECG is not is not part of it. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, Ross. So I guess two questions. Um and, and maybe the let me ask the first one is beyond that, what other tools does the cardiologist have at their disposal to try and I think you said there about two thirds of those conditions that can cause cardiac arrest can be found that way. Are the other one third discoverable using even more sophisticated methods, cardiac MRIs and so MRIs and so forth? Yeah, um, and then let me let me hold the second part of that till you've answered the first because it, it follows on. Sure, I mean, so the cardiologist definitely has other tools that they could use. You know, for screening purposes, I think it's debatable if any of them should be used for screening purposes. Mm -hmm. But I would say that you know the the most common available tool would be an ultrasound in in in, in echo or echocardiogram of the heart that shows the size, um, anatomy, and function of the heart. You know, when you talk about young athletes, there are two important entities that are missed by ECG screening. One of them is anomalous coronary arteries, which is our most common cause of sudden cardiac death in, in again, you know, young adolescents. Um, and the other is uh, dilated aortas or aortopathies, you know, like in Marfan syndrome or connective tissue disorders. Mm -hmm. And so you don't see electrocardiogram abnormalities in those disorders. So an echo that is specifically focused on those two entities could potentially be helpful if you were going to do a screen. You know, a screening echocardiogram is not as easy as it sounds, meaning 
there's been a lot of research and work and debate about how you look at an ECG in an athlete to distinguish physiologic changes from pathologic entities. The same is true for, for an echocardiogram. You know, there are a lot of features that that emerge in someone who's been training regularly in their heart that can be interpreted by a, a less skilled uh, cardiologist interpreter unfamiliar with, let's say, athlete, athlete's heart and call an echo abnormal. So I think using echo as a screening tool presents some issues, especially if those um, the people interpreting it don't have good experience in athlete's heart versus pathologic conditions. Cardiac MRI to me is not a screening tool, but it's a great diagnostic tool. It's our gold standard for cardiomyopathy. It can look for anomalous coronary arteries, um, give more information even about uh, aortopathies, et cetera. So it's, it can be a, a great diagnostic tool when some of the initial screens are abnormal or other clinical features might uh, push you that direction. You also brought up as well, right? Uh, cardiac MRI. So I've got that right. We, we, I want to get onto that in a moment, but I just wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, cardiac MRI uh, really can give you is our gold standard for for diagnosis of myocarditis because it can give you uh, information on the tissue characteristics of the myocardium and and whether or not there's inflammation or scar tissue within the heart muscle, um, which could be suspicious for something like myocarditis. Hmm. Okay, so then the follow-on question to that is: the more the more tests you throw at something, the more likely you'll find a problem. But it might be a problem you don't actually have to do anything about, as we've discovered. Or you can do small things, but you don't have to see it as a death sentence or a death sentence for your sports career, right? <laughs> Plus, it throws up the, the risk of false positives. So, I wanted to use that to circle back to you. Told us your foundation story, your superhero foundation story was learning about athletes' heart. Can you explain to us athlete's heart and contrast it with myopathies, especially the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and how they differ and when one, because I would imagine that one gets confused a lot or people, people misinterpret it. You mentioned it already in the context of ECGs. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, athlete's heart represents physiologic or normal cardiac adaptations and changes to regular exercise. And, and those changes occur both structurally as well as electrically. So um, like any other muscle in the body, when you work it out a lot, it changes. It can get stronger, it might even get a little thicker. And so in, in, in normal athlete's heart, you can expect that the, the heart muscle might be get a little thicker in, in some sports, the, the chamber size might get a little bigger. It allows more cardiac output and stroke volume um, to feed your working muscles around the body, which becomes an adaptation for performance. Um, the heart rate can slow because of that. So you have slower heart rates in athletes, et cetera. And, and all of these features will show up on electrocardiogram um, as uh, slower heart rates and sinus arrhythmia and left ventricular um, uh, voltage criteria uh, for, for hypertrophy, um, but they're normal. They're, they're not abnormal. In contrast, in cardiomyopathies, you, you can also have a thickened heart. You can also have voltage criteria, let's say, but you'll also have other abnormalities, such as repolarization abnormalities on the EKG, which would not be a feature seen in uh, athlete's heart. And so it becomes a, a nuanced look to, to differentiate some of these um, 
ECG findings, but one now that there's uh, clear criteria on, on how you interpret an ECG in a young athlete that, that lowers that false positive rate and that potential um, uh, uh, of saying that a young athlete who doesn't have a problem, you know, needs more testing. And is that, is that the same as swimmer's heart and cyclist's heart? And I remember listening to somebody telling me once that he had swimmer's heart and he'd been advised to do shorter, more intense workouts because his heart was too big because his workouts more, 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 more endurance-based. <laughs> I don't know how accurate he was with that, but are those, are those conditions similar to that? Yeah, I, mean, I think what they're referring to is that, that when you do one form of exercise repetitively all the time, you get certain predictable cardiac adaptations. So the cardiac adaptations, let's say in a, in a power lifter, in a weight lifter, might be quite different than that swimmer who does endurance sports. And their hearts will look different. If you looked at all power lifters and all swimmers, there'd be similar features in, in each group. And, and that's really important. So if you're a cardiologist interpreting that imaging study, the echocardiogram, looking at size and, and function and, and those features, knowing what sport and exercise habits the individual has can be quite helpful to, to give you the correct interpretation. Mm. Deep in the deep in the recesses of my brain, some I remember in honors learning, like we it was described to us as you get sports that induce a volume load because the circulatory demands running, cycling, swimming, and a pressure load like weightlifting, where you lift heavy weights, often against like a really, really high increase in blood pressure, right? And that causes different adaptations. The one thickens the muscle, the one enlarges the chamber relatively. And so the question, I suppose, is are there types of activities that can predispose to the development of this condition that might then become problematic or just is the heart smart enough to avoid it unless there's underlying pathology? I think more the latter, Ross. I, I, I think that exercise in general is, is quite healthy. And there, there are questions, you know, can you exercise too much? Can you have, yeah. can your heart become so dilated from exercise or could you get scar tissue from exercises? I think those are really the rare exceptions and, and not, and maybe they're in individuals who have a predisposition for it. And so um, I think in general, we should think of, of exercise as, as a healthy entity um, and not necessarily while it might cause changes in the heart, that these changes are not ultimately going to be pathologic. And do you get high rivers versus steam engines? I, I, for example, two people sitting here talking to you are very different in terms of the way that our heart rate responds. Ross is a higher river, and I'm a relatively, I think, fairly normal river. So when he's riding, his heart rate is, you know, his, his average heart rate on a ride will be somewhere near my max. And mine will be a lot lower. Is that is that a, a condition? But even within certain sports, are there different people who operate at a different level? Depending, and has that got to do with the size of the heart, the size of the chambers? What 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 is the reason for that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of individual variation in what we would consider normal, and you know, cardiac output is a formula of stroke volume times the heart rate, and so the larger the stroke volume. Um, or the higher the heart rate, the more the cardiac output. And so you can adjust those and, and still have similar cardiac output. Um, your cardiac output requirements are going to be a function of body size and work rate and um, oxygen extraction at the muscle level and a lot of individual variation. So um, I think there's always going to be a range of normal and, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that range seems quite large. I mean, just in our very limited experience, I mean, the large, the range of of heart rate between the people that we ride with is quite large for, on the same ride. For example, what's the highest heart rate you've seen on a bike in the last 12 months? 168. So I've, <laughs> I've seen 203 in my yeah. life. So. Yeah. So that's that's an example of it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that's a that's a that's a heck of a variation, isn't it? I mean, we have a difference in age by what ten years. Yeah, but, so there's a ten year age difference, which I guess also has is a factor. Yeah, right. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Let's get on to some of the more controversial um, issues around these things. And this is always something that I think the uh, people love to uh, discuss. We've obviously had uh, the the COVID scares highlighted the influence that viral conditions have had on the heart. Um, Before we get into the COVID story, uh, just tell us a little bit about the effect of viruses on the heart, because we talk, I've had doctors tell us, tell me that if if you have a, a, a flu virus, virus, you shouldn't exercise for two months. Um, is is the experience of getting a viral condition more severe than people actually uh, make it? In other words, do people get back into sport long before they should do and should be more cautious when it comes to viral viral um, conditions? Sure. Um, you know, for a long time, we've known that viral conditions can cause myocarditis in some individuals. So myocarditis is inflammation or infection of the, of the heart muscle, and that can turn into a focus for an arrhythmia. Um, and in our research on sudden cardiac death in, in young athletes, you know, myocarditis represents maybe four to 9% of all cases, and, and that's pre-COVID pandemic. So, so for many, many years, there are lots of viruses out there that potentially can do it. Having said that, viral infections are super common and myocarditis is not, thankfully. And so the message to the public, I think, is that when you have a viral syndrome, you know, you you, you want to feel good as you return to exercise. So if you don't have fever and all you have is a, a runny nose or a sore throat, you want to go for a jog or a bike ride, I think that's totally fine. Um, if you are down for the count, with fever and body aches and a cough, I don't think that's the best time to exercise. And you wanna probably rest and recover until you're feeling better and ready to return to exercise. And then probably most important, as you do get back into exercise, you wanna carefully monitor how you feel. And so I think most people who've had a bad viral syndrome when they return to exercise will notice that they're that they're not quite at the same condition as they were before. That first time out, you know, they're going to feel a little more tired, a little more fatigued. I think that's expected. But if they continue to exercise and they, let's say, have bad chest pain or new chest pain, that should raise a, a caution flag. And, and that's probably a reason to come in and get evaluated. And, and that's true for really any viral syndrome. And, and we've learned a lot because of COVID, but I don't think COVID is any different than what we've already had out you know, in the community pre-pandemic in terms of viral syndrome and heart issues. John, if you've spoken there about listening to how you feel, chest pain and so forth, a lot of people listening to this are are data fiends. They love a bit of data. They'll measure heart rates during exercise. Is is heart rates in the recovery or the return to normal training and competition a valid and reliable way to understand that my heart is okay to go back to max or not? Um, I, I think it's okay to monitor, but 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 if let's say your heart rate is higher as you return to exercise, I, I wouldn't be that concerned. Meaning, 
you might be more deconditioned and exactly, yeah. you know from time off and and you need to get back into shape and that's reason your heart rate is higher you might still be recovering overall um you know systemically and your heart rate's a little higher so i don't, I don't think it's a flag that necessarily something is wrong um mm -hmm. i think you want to you monitor it watch it um and over time see what happens in in our in our studies in young athletes in covid you know, the, the symptom that stood out for potential cardiac involvement was exertional chest pain on return to exercise. And so I, I think that is, to me, probably the most important feature to sort of monitor. Yeah, let's let's talk about COVID versus the, the pre-COVID days. We draw a line in human history in many respects, but including this one. Is, is COVID more likely based on the evidence to cause myocarditis? I know that there were a few studies very early on, and just for the sake of listeners, way before the vaccine or the, the jibby jab, as someone sarcastically called it to me <laughs> the other day, named it to me, way before that existed, you were already documenting the prevalence of myocarditis in young athletes recovering from COVID. Was that figure, and I'll let you give that range, was that figure higher than had been documented for other vari variations or forms of flu or, or the same? So early in COVID, before the vaccines, there was concern based on very sick hospitalized patients that COVID had more of a predisposition to affect the heart and cause problems. So this is what raised the concern in athletes. Mm. It turns out that SARS-CoV-2 was causing um, patients with potential underlying heart disease to have issues and be hospitalized for other reasons. But we embarked on a, a large sort of screening um, process in athletes, largely driven by concern and, and fear. You know, thankfully, evidence has proven that those fears were largely unjustified. Um, that in our young athletes, that the prevalence of cardiac involvement from a viral syndrome was really, really low. Um, and we have not seen any uptick in events in the United States relative to COVID-19 and myocarditis. So there, we're not having, uh, you know, uh, an epidemic of cardiac arrest from, from COVID or the vaccine. All of that, to me, is misinformation. So can, um, sorry, can you repeat that for the sake of clarity? <laughs> yes, because, I just repeat that. So what you're saying Absolutely. is, so what you're saying is that since COVID compared to before, there is no significant increase in young athletes of more cardiac arrests that can be linked to either COVID or the vaccine. Hundred percent correct, Ross. Yeah, I, I've seen I've seen videos on social media um, saying that these cases were related to the vaccine. Some of the some of the pictures of the athletes that they're talking about died before COVID nineteen even existed. Um, I think it's misinformation, and there's another agenda there. I, I work with the National Center for Catastrophic Sports Injury Research in the U.S. We, we monitor for all cases of, of cardiac arrest and death in a young competitive athlete across the U.S. We've done this for, for 20 years now. Um, we have not seen any increase in the rate of sudden cardiac arrest or death through the COVID-19 pandemic. There's no higher rates of myocarditis. We're not seeing it related to either the virus or the vaccine. Um, and um, I think data that suggests otherwise to me is is faulty and and largely misinformation. Yeah. So, so for the purposes of com data completeness, that prevalence. There was a study you did. I think you were an author on. Maybe not. Seven hundred eighty-nine professional athletes. I believe the prevalence was 06 percent. So that's six in a thousand. Call it one hundred sixty yeah. odd. Yeah. I saw a study yeah. more recently in Big Ten where it was a little higher. 
I think two and a half percent, if I got 2.4%, I think it was. I'll put these studies in the show notes for people to look at. And that's just the myocarditis. Now the myocarditis has to still cause the cardiac arrest and there's no evidence at all from mature, uh, well-controlled monitoring programs that there's been any increase at all. That's correct. The, the, right. So those cases, and, and those studies also, Ross, about the, the prevalence of myocarditis related to COVID are, to me, are also mixed, meaning, so we, we did a study on over 3,600 college athletes and the prevalence of cardiac involvement was uh, 0.7%, so about the mm -hmm. same as that professional athlete study. The issue when you start to do all these additional tests, echocardiograms, cardiac MRI, is you start to see things and you don't know what they mean in the context of someone who doesn't have myocarditis symptoms. And so in cardiology, criteria to diagnose myocarditis by imaging have always been linked to symptoms of a clinical syndrome that suggests myocarditis. I have fever, I have chest pain, maybe shortness of breath, et cetera. So when you have an athlete who doesn't have any of those symptoms and feels well, but just tested positive for SARS-CoV-2, and you do a cardiac MRI and you see a little spot of something on there and you don't know what it means, is that myocarditis? I, it isn't. And I think this was problematic in some of the, the, the studies that came out um, related to you know, the risk for athletes and, and heart problems from COVID. The Big Ten study that you talk about, they did cardiac MRI across the, 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 the conference. Some institutions found no cases of cardiac involvement and some found like seven percent of their athletes had what they call myocarditis and that just can't be the case it, 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 i think this was variation in, in interpretation and this is where i think we've learned a lot about the heart after a viral syndrome so i don't think the risk is any different in terms of truly developing myocarditis the risk isn't any different in cardiac arrest but we've never done cardiac mri after influenza you know, for athletes. And mm. now we did cardiac MRI and all these athletes who've recently had, let's say, COVID. And we've seen some, you know, hints and mild changes and some of which resolve on repeat testing a couple months later. And do these changes that we've seen really mean anything clinically? I think outside of the setting of symptoms, I, I don't think they do. And yeah. so, so, so we've learned quite a bit. We did a lot of testing and a lot of, a lot of research on this. Um, but I think we've come full circle with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, just, just like, and a lot of this, I promise this will be the last point, and before we can get onto some other things, what what's the best estimate you've seen for the prevalence of myocarditis after the vaccine, and by how many orders of magnitude is that lower than from an actual flu virus, including and or COVID and or COVID? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd say the best estimate is about one in twenty thousand for for the vaccine. You know, maybe that's yeah. the high end, um, and highest risk in, in adolescent males. And I think when you talk about, you know, 0.7%, that's one in a thousand, you know, let's say. Right. So so there's there's clearly a difference in magnitude. You're you're at higher risk if you actually get the virus, perhaps, to have cardiac changes or cardiac involvement. Um, I'm not sure all of those are myocarditis. And then with the with the vaccine, um, there is uh, some risk. I think it's quite low. I think from a, a public health standpoint, um, people are, are, are definitely better getting vaccinated um, than not getting vaccinated, um, you know, for COVID-19. And it prevents 
uh, acute illness, it can prevent your risk of, of long-term complications from COVID, prevents risk of hospitalization, et cetera. So, so I think there's way more benefits to the vaccine than, the, than there are risks. Yeah. I mean, I saw a stat, 192 million people vaccinated, 1,990 cases of myocarditis reported or found, which is one in 100,000. John said one in 20,000. The, the good studies in athletes, I think, let's say, even conservatively, not point. I think that Big Ten study was 0.3% with yeah. symptoms. So yeah. that's one in 300 as opposed to one in 20,000. Yeah. Like, I know which odds I'll be taking. Yeah, I, I think, Ross, that I think you're right about one in 100,000 is probably a better estimate. I think I've seen one in 20,000, which would be to me the high end. So somewhere yeah, in that range, yeah. but it's still quite low. Yeah, even the most aggressive case you can make against vaccines is still orders of magnitude worse than the virus. So I just, it's just, but we are in a stage where if you trip on a rock, it's a vaccine (laughs) to some people. It's mad. Yeah. Uh, John, like, let's just, if we, if we were to wrap up, because I think we've covered the, the, the important ones. Um, I wanted to talk that the the topical issue is the Hamlin case uh, that happened a couple of weeks back. And there's no doubt that the, it, it, it highlighted and showed people how important that immediate care is. We started off talking a little bit about Hank Gathers and some of the care that was given there. Can you just talk and run through a little bit about how survival rates have changed as knowledge has grown and what that major change has been? Yeah, absolutely. This is to me like the most important part of, of cardiac prevention, right, is, is how we respond to an athlete who is in cardiac arrest. And um, there's been tremendous progress over the last couple of decades. And so, you know, Demar Hamlin's case, Monday Night Football is a great example of prompt care and, and a good outcome. Um, we looked at exercise-related cardiac arrest in youth in the U.S. from 2000 to 2006. And this is, so this is, you know, 20 years ago. And the survival rate overall then was about 11%. You know, fast forward now, and we've recently published a study looking at survival from exercise-related cardiac arrest in high school athletes from 2014 to 2018, and the overall survival rate was was um, uh, 68%. With, with some, with the most recent year, over 70%, and if you have an AED close by, over 80%. And so you've made this massive shift in survival. Um, over the course of 15 to 20 years. So, so what is the difference? And the difference is better recognition, faster responses, and more availability of AEDs. And so in, in 2007, we published a consensus statement on the recognition and management of SCA in athletes. And I think the, the key feature here is this assumption of cardiac arrest in an athlete who is collapsed and unresponsive on the field of play. And so it's a little different when you see a clear head injury but for instance, that Christian Erickson case uh, is a great example. Mm-hmm. Someone who is just on the field, is on the rugby field, is walking, is running, et cetera, and suddenly collapses. When you reach them as a rescuer and they are unresponsive to, to verbal stimuli, to me, that is cardiac arrest until proven otherwise. So you want to call for help, have someone go get the defibrillator and start chest compressions as soon as possible. And most importantly, I think if you're uncertain what's going on, put on the pads, put on the defibrillator pads, put on the AED leads. The AED is so accurate. It will not shock if not indicated. 
And I think some of the delays in these resuscitations are because rescuers think the individual is still breathing. They see their eyes open and they're really just open and rolled back and not responsive. The, the rescuer thinks they feel a pulse and there's really not a pulse. Um, I know I'd be quite scared in that kind of situation. So my heart would be pounding and be hard to feel a pulse. And so if you're not certain what's going on and you have an AED or defibrillator close by, please just put it on. Um, mm. That's going to save life. Yeah. Sometimes, just sorry, let me ask it this way. Before this recognition and growing awareness, what, what were they looking for? <laughs> if, if not cardiac arrest, what else were they coming on there expecting to find? Yeah, you know, great question, Ross. I, I think they, I think it's hard to make a diagnosis of something that's catastrophic. I, I think, you know, people like to think something bad is not happening, right? So they mm -hmm. passed out and so-and-so is just having a seizure or someone's having heat illness. Um, I've had, you know, there's a, a tragic case of a, of a basketball player um, who collapsed in the middle of winter in a gymnasium, but they opened the gymnasium doors thinking that it was heat illness and it was cardiac arrest and they just didn't respond with that in mind. So greater awareness that yes, this is an entity and that it presents differently than these other things like, like heat illness or uh, head and neck trauma, et cetera. Um, and that you can sort of tell the difference and, and you yeah. can tell the difference. And so I think collapse and unresponsive to me is, is the trigger that this is cardiac arrest until proven otherwise. So I'm going to yeah. treat it like that. I mean, there are some tragic cases actually by way of learning this. Um, there's one people can look up when Ajax footballer suffered a cardiac arrest. Ajax football club eventually settled with the family confessing that their medical staff hadn't reacted quickly enough with a defibrillator they tried other methods of treatment first. He survived it, but he incurred such significant brain damage that he now needs medical care. And they settled that case. You can find a report on it. And so that's an example of like learning. You start, you try and do the heart first is the point. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 I suppose in sport, the, the protocols around this have changed quite radically in the last decade or so across all different sports. I mean, are there, are there certain sports that are more at risk? I mean, I suppose it's a difficult question, but that, that surely there aren't i mean if you're if you're a runner versus a football player versus a well, baseball it's, player it's interesting and it's important because i did the one thing we haven't spoken about is the incidents like how common is this if you if you yeah. for the cover the coverage of the hamlin case you think it never happened tragically it does more than people might realize but the most common that i've seen john and correct me if i'm wrong is basketball and particular african-americans now that's a combination of genetic and some of the coexisting conditions that create height so John, maybe John can explain that a bit more. That's fascinating. Yeah, so, so I, I agree with part of that, Ross. Um, so in our research in the U.S., the highest risk group is our male basketball players and specifically black male basketball players. Um, I, I don't think it's genetic and I don't think it's uh, uh, a different set of disorders. And I do wonder if there's some social determinants of health that um, affects pre-existing care, early detection that may, may go into that. But, but we're we're actively trying to research why why this is. So um, so because I'd, I'd read a paper where it speculated that it's the Marfan syndrome. That yeah, it's, our basketball like players it. are not are, are they're not dying of Marfan syndrome. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's not. And, yeah, cool. I, and I, would, I would say that's sort of speculation. And yeah. Um, but 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 it's an important question, and I think there's clearly and we've we've seen racial disparities in survival as well, and and that probably is related to. Um, availability of AEDs and resources in the community, et cetera, which is true both in young athletes and other 
minority communities where survival rates from SCA are, are lower. And so there's a lot of work, work to be done in, in that space. In terms of risk groups, you know, if you take in the US, you know, basketball is our highest risk group. Our next highest risk group is American football. And after that is soccer. And those three sports alone make up about 70% of cases in the US. Now you can have obviously cardiac arrest in other sports. I think one of the things that we have to recognize is that when we think of, you know, we identify these cases largely through media reports and there is some bias to the more high profile sports being reported mm -hmm. more. So if you're in a less profile sport, lower profile, um, or perhaps at a lower level, like not in um, uh, a lower level, like uh, high school and middle school compared to college or professional, it might be less likely to be reported in the media and um, and found, you know, in the research studies. But uh, around the world, I think basketball and and soccer or, or you know football would be the the most high profile sports and and have the highest rates. Hmm. What's what's Marfan syndrome? <laughs> to the um, non scientists of us. Yeah, Marfan syndrome is a connective tissue disorder, usually in in very tall, sort of lanky looking individuals, wide arm spans, and and they can have a variety of connective tissue problems. One of which can be a dilated aorta um, that is at risk of rupture. And okay. um, Flo Hyman was a U.S. volleyball player and probably the most high profile uh, sudden death in an athlete uh, related to Marfan syndrome, you know, decades ago. Um, but definitely a, a, a known cause of, of, of sudden death in athletes. Um, but even though basketball players are tall, they're, they're, they're not necessarily the ones that are, are having um, mm. uh, Marfan's as the cause of sudden death. That's sure. a good example of like a red herring because yeah. that's literally seen it written in studies, you know, attributing a prevalence to that. And it's just an example of people putting two and two together and coming up with five. Yeah, for mm. sure. Makes mm. sense when you look at the guys. Yeah, <laughs> but then it doesn't at all when you look at the data. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, okay. John, That's can it, I ask it, the last question? Yes, go and for it's, it. It's, it's like actually unrelated to what we've been talking about here, but I'm, because it's been so difficult to get you on, I can't let the opportunity go, <laughs> go to waste. Uh, there's, a, there's a famous book by Matt Randall called The Death of Marco Pantani, The Cyclist. And in that book, he tells a story about how in the 1990s, a story emerged out of elite cycling that they'd been using so much EPO and making their blood so viscous, high hematocrits, that they used to have to set an alarm at night because their heart rate would drop so low and they'd have to get up and ride on the rollers at night. You've heard this? Have you heard this? Story yes, I've heard this. Yeah. And there's a quote in the book. I mean, it captured it. He said, these guys live to ride and then at night they ride to stay alive. And I, I can't see the mechanism by which that could possibly be true. It sounds to me like an urban legend. <laughs> maybe. I mean, maybe, you know, it, that makes me nervous, right? You know, you have such a high hematocrit and perhaps uh, increased viscosity, risk of clotting and, and issues. But if you're delivering more oxygen to the body and your 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 resting needs and sleep are so low your your heart rate does go down at, at night and so I, I don't think it would stop um but i think you know lower heart rates mm -hmm. at night are, are normal because you require less um you know energy production and, and less oxygen to be delivered so it, it's possible but yeah that 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 sounds uh like there's still some questions there i'd, I'd love to hear from a cyclist who raced in that era and who could actually say you know what i was on a team and we did that yeah 
just just so to know that it happened because I, I heard they used to do press ups. That was what they did to yeah. try and get the heart heart rate up again oh. in the middle of the night. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, John, yeah, that thanks for letting me ask that left field question. But more importantly, thanks for your time on the on the main issue, the sudden cardiac arrest. I mean, fascinating. So thanks very much from me. Yeah, John, thanks very much for your time. And I look forward to maybe catching up with you sometime down the future. I think there's lots to discuss in this sort of area. So it's fascinating to somebody talking to somebody who's so involved in sport because this is, you know, it's, it's, these conditions are very different amongst active sports people as opposed to normal people. So thank you for your time. Absolutely. Mike and Ross, good to see you. And thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.